Hey, it's Shane here. Throughout the majority of my career, I spent thousands of hours on my technique to try to be as close to perfect as I could be. But the one thing I didn't work on was my mental skills. On the exact mindset I needed every ball to be able to access all of my technical skills that I worked so hard to develop. Well, I've recently released my book, Winning the Inner Battle, which has all of the information that you will ever need to deeply understand how you can create the correct mindset for you so that you can bring the best version of yourself every time you step out into the middle. Go to shamewatson.au to purchase a copy of Winning the Inner Battle now. It is available in paperback, ebook, or audiobook versions. Well, it's now time for your episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. Enjoy. There's two parts to captaincy. Uh, there's the on-field stuff, which is, you know, if you've got a half a cricket brain and a bit of common sense, it's not that difficult. You know, changing the bowler, making, uh, pinning up the batting order, moving the field around, it's, it's all pretty well common sense with a bit of cricket knowledge. And then there's the, there's the leadership side of it, which is the off-field stuff. And, and I've always said that the time that you spend off the field, putting in time with your player, that you'll reap the rewards for that on the field. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lessons Learned with the Greats. I'm Shane Watson, and I, like every other modern-day cricketer, can thank one man for the conditions that we play under today. He scored 1,400s in 75 tests at an average of just over 42, and is not only considered one of the best slips fielders, but also one of Australia's greatest test captains. Ian Chappell, welcome to my show. Thanks a lot, Sean. <laughs> you were, you were thought as a visionary from a very young age seeing cricket as a profession. Your battle with administrators over pay and conditions started 50 years ago. You're still a vocal campaigner today. You famously butted heads with the greatest batsman of all time, Sir Donald Bradman, and it was over the players and how they were regarded. History certainly looks very kindly on your on your stand, and that is what real leadership is all about. I'd love to just understand from your perspective where things were at during that time and then knowing that the players weren't being looked after financially and just being looked after in general and having the board just pushing back all the time. What was that like at that time and also – primarily being the leader as well? Well, firstly, let me say I, I really wasn't in, interested in playing professional cricket, uh, but my main beef was that two things, um, that we weren't being paid what we were, what I felt we were due, and secondly, we didn't have any say in what was going on. That was They were the two big things. Um, yeah, I never played county cricket because I didn't want to play six days a week. <laughs> I mean, it, it probably sounds strange to people having me say that, but um, and a, a couple of times uh, I said to people, I you know I don't want to earn my living from cricket, but I did, and and a lot of the other guys wanted to be paid what they thought they were worth. The the attitude of the board, as far as I was concerned, was you were a number. So I was number three, and I always figured that if you were an agitator, because we didn't have a players' association, if you were an agitator, then they'd say, all right, number three, he's bloody, he's causing problems. We'll just wait till he fails a couple of times. We'll get rid of him, and we'll find another number three. Mm. So to me, that's what you were to the board. You were a number. 
um, <clears throat> the things really started to get a bit heated uh, on the 69 leg of uh, the India. We did India, South Africa. Um, and here again, uh, we were sold up the river by the board. Um, the original tour was India and Pakistan, which is okay because pretty similar conditions, mm. I assume. I didn't play in Pakistan, but reasonably similar conditions. But Pakistan wouldn't pay the uh, – in, in those days it was a guarantee system. So if Australia were going to Pakistan, they'd negotiate a fee, Australia would get that fee and it – didn't matter to Australia how many people turned up to watch. They got their fee. Australia wanted the money, I assume, in was well, probably either US dollars or English pounds. Pakistan would only pay in their currency. So the board said, no, we're not going. <laughs> and of course, as soon as they said that, South Africa jumped in and said, oh, well, you know, we'll pay you. So the board, not giving a continental about us, we went India. So three and a half months on tracks that are turning sideways. Straight to South Africa uh, with our best fast bowler gone down. He got, uh, Graham McKenzie got crook mm-hmm. in India. And then we go straight to South Africa and we're facing a whole pile of seamers on green tops. So and it, we were sold up the river there. But we started to get really angry during that um, tour of India. Um, there was there were a couple of things happened. Uh, one, I th- I've got a feeling it was Ian Redpath. He discovered that... Uh, if one of the guys died on the tour, the, the wife would get – was either $400 or $1,200 would be the payout from the board. Goodness. And then at some point somebody did an interview with Bradman back in Australia and said, why isn't Greg Chappell on the, in the side to India and South Africa? And Bradman said, well, he's better off back in Australia making runs in shield cricket and not getting crook in India. Oh, gosh. And, of course, you can imagine in those days the, the papers, we'd get the papers like a week later <laughs> yeah. and this is coming and we've read that and, oh, so it doesn't matter a shit if we get crook. But <laughs> uh, So, you know, it was getting really aggro. Yeah. We had a Bill called, Bill Laurie was the captain, Bill called a players-only meeting in, in Guwahati, which was oh, yeah, a there. real bad place, yep. really bad. <laughs> And we all aired our grievances and Bill was making notes, you see. And at the end of that meeting, I went to Bill, I was vice captain, I went to Bill and I said, mate, you know, we all agree that these things are wrong. Don't you just write a letter to the board and sign it yourself? Because I said, if you do that, they'll just wait for you to fail a couple of times and boom, you'll be gone. (laughs) Bill said, yeah, yeah, sure, mate. And you know, when he got back home, he sent the letter off, signed only by himself, and guess what happened? That was so. That was uh, end of the South African tour. That was probably uh, March, April. He would have sent the letter. Nineteen seventy. Um, I took over the captaincy in early nineteen seventy-one. They got rid of Bill. Yeah. Um, so that was the feeling. You know, I had um, I had two meetings with the board, invited by the board. Um, I've since found out just recently in in the minutes of the meeting that uh, uh, that Clem Jones, who was the one of the Queensland board members, uh, was uh, told the chairman to remind me that it was a privilege to be invited to come <laughs> and uh, front the board. The second meeting, Tim Corbell was the uh, was the chairman of the board, and at the end of the meeting, and and there were two I, I forget how many points I had, ten or twelve points. 
and I know that number five and number six were the financial ones, the ones about finance. Bradman was slumped in his chair for the first four. As soon as we got to the two on finance, he sat up, bowled upright, <laughs> told me that, no, we couldn't do that, you know, that's not possible, and <laughs> I got the harangue from him. And then after the point number six, which was the last financial one, he just slumped back in the chair again. And at the end of that meeting, Tim Corbell came to me and he said, oh, Ian, that was really good. It went well. Uh, we must do it again. And I said, Tim, I won't be back. Oh, why not? And I said, well, mate, I've never found much fun in banging my head against a brick wall. And I said, that was all I was doing in that room. I said, I'd rather play golf than bang my head against a brick wall. I won't be back. Um, so, and by 74-5, it was getting really aggro. Mm. Um I at the start I'd been I started writing I think in about in seventy three sometimes started with magazines and then newspaper column Eric Beecher who had the cricketer magazine he he got me writing for his magazine and then he got me a job with a newspaper writing and I thought at the start of the seventy four five season I'll write one really strong column and then I'll leave it alone make my point and shut up. Which I did. Dennis Silly had Tom Pryor as a ghost writer for the Melbourne Sun. And Dennis did more than one. I can't remember two, three, I forget how many, but very strong. And before the first test at the Gabba, Tim Corbell came to me and he said, Ian, um, you better back off. Tell your fastball to back off with his articles. And I said, why don't you go tell him yourself, Tim? Because I happen to agree with him. So it was getting quite aggro at that point. To the stage where, and, and this is how dumb cricketers are, or they were, you guys are probably a hell of a lot smarter, but at the Melbourne test, which was the last test of the 74-5 series, the second Melbourne test, uh, they announced that the gate takings for the series were a quarter of a million dollars. And that's when it hit me. I thought, hang on, quarter of a million dollars, um, I'm getting 1,200 for the series, uh, multiply that by 12 players, England are obviously getting something as well, probably not mm. much more than us. There's a hell of a lot left over. Where's that going? <laughs> um, and then I think because we'd agitated, agi agitated so hard, they probably got a bit embarrassed and the fee went from $200 a test, as it was then, uh, they gave us a bonus of $200 per test. So okay. it went from 1200 to 2400 I know that... The tour of England in 1972, which was my first overseas tour as captain. Um, we were there about five and a half months and um, we got $2,300. Um, now, I was I was okay. There were about five of us. Uh, Dougie Walters and Keith Stackpole with, were with Rothmans. Uh, Greg was with probably Coca-Cola or he might have been with AMP. Mm -hmm. He got and, and I was with WDNH and Wills, the tobacco company. So we all got paid from work. So we, you know, we were okay. We, uh, you know, at least our wives had money back in Australia to live on and we could live on the money we were getting paid in England. Mm -hmm. But guys like Ross Edwards, who probably at that stage had a couple of kids, mm -hmm. he was having to send money home to his wife to, to live on with two kids and he had to, you know, do the best he could um, in England. So... That's a sort of a quick history of, uh, of where it was. Um, uh, I think Richie, Richie was quoted at some point in saying that in the 50s and 60s, 
players uh, just said they agreed. You know, they just said yes. Uh, whereas the players of the seventies started to say why. Yeah. Um, and and that was part. I, and I'm speaking for myself. It was part of, of the education that I had at Prince Alfred College. Um, mm. You were. You know, you felt comfortable about queering things at uh, Prince's. Yeah. Uh, Greg also went, and Trevor, we all went there. But I think it was also part of uh, society at that stage. You know, it, um, it had, you know, I mean, 68, you had all the, the um, eruption in, in the United States yep. with all the pro, which is virtually happening again now. You know, the, mm-hmm. the exact same thing that happened in 68 is happening now yep. in the States. So it was a time of a bit of, you know, I mean, the Beatles had a song, Revolution, um, and it was a time of revolution. And, and that, those people, you know, I mean, the Beatles born round about the same time as I was. Mm. Um, you know, I was 13 when rock and roll started in 56. And, you know, so there was a bit of revolution in the air. And, and I think so it was partly society and partly the education that I had. Well, everyone's incredibly grateful. <clears throat> but uh, let me yeah, correct one thing. Of course. It wasn't me just on my own. No, you know, of course. There were a lot. I mean, I, I think the, the most damning thing as far as cricket boards around the world are concerned is that there were, I think, 51 or 52 players originally signed. Mm. And you know what cricketers are like. You you give them something that's supposed to be a secret and five minutes later the whole world will know, right? <laughs> yeah, go sell them. Yep. Yeah. Well, now that that remained a secret. It probably started It started before the centenary test, which would have been February, March 77, <laughs> and, and it started well before that and it really didn't come to light till about, I think, May, maybe even June 77. So let's say about six months mm. it remained a secret. So that, two things, it, it tells you how pissed off the players were, but it wasn't just the Australian players. You know, the the players, there were a lot of players from other, obviously the West Indies, yeah. uh, England, players, I mean, in 70-71, uh, when the first one day was played, that came about because the test in Melbourne, the Boxing Day test was washed out. And the board obviously suddenly thought, mm, Jesus, here's all this money going out the door, right. so we'll have a one-day game. They scrapped the <laughs> test and, um, you know, second or third day in we hadn't bowled a ball and they scrapped the test, decided to have a one-day. And I know in talking to the Englishmen, uh, Ray Illingworth and John Snow in particular were really pissed off mm. because they said, you know, our bloke has agreed to all this and we're not getting paid anything extra to play in this game. We weren't even consulted. And, and see, here again, we're going mm. back to the fact that there was no consultation. And I always felt with the board that if we'd asked for them to change the colour of the sweaters or uh, something like that, they'd have agreed. They'd said, yeah, yeah, sure, that's fine. As soon as we asked for anything to do with money, no chance. So... And my feeling was always that they would they would say yes to simple things, mm. so that they could say, "Oh, look, you know, we're you know we're bending over backwards for the players." <laughs> Bollocks, they were. They you know they were bending it over when it suited them, yeah. and um, 
And, you know, I, I said this the other day uh, uh, in an interview. I was asked about the board when Kevin Roberts was sacked. Mm. And two things about that. To me, it's like picking a player for a, a test match and then you drop him after one test. <laughs> that means you've made a mistake mm. in your selection the fir- in the first place. If you've got a CEO contracted for three years and you sack him after 18 months, that means you've made a mistake in the first place. That's that's that about it. But then I was asked, you know, who I thought might replace Kevin Roberts and I said the board will get the, the type of person they want. Mm. They'll get a piece of putty that they can mould however they want it. Now, I've been told by a board person that, oh, they're going for the best best possible person. I said, well, I hope that happens because it'll be a deviation from your past because to me they've all and, – and I'm talking from experience here because mm. I had a mate who was well qualified who asked me to write a reference for him uh, for the job of CEO. This is going back. This is – he was beaten out by Halbish and Speed. Okay. And my mate was much better qualified than either of those two gentlemen. And I told him when he rang me and asked me, I told him two things. I said, mate, have you given any thought to the fact that a reference from me will not help you with the Australian <laughs> cricket board? And I said, and secondly, they don't want you. You've got a mind of your own. Mm. Um, you're not the sort of person they want. Yep. He then asked me the second time and I told him the same thing again, but he went again. And I rang him up and I said, mate, don't try for the hat trick. And he didn't. Yeah, because that, that's that's a, one of the biggest issues is if when if, if the board, if there's people wanting in the board to for things to go in one direction, they're not going to want someone who's going to potentially push them out of a job and expose yeah. them for, for for their weaknesses yeah. because yeah. that's not that's not what they want. So yeah, yeah exactly. They're mm. going to be looking for someone who they can who they can just yeah, mold mold mm. like putty. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Mm. Well, I'm going to move on to some some batting, um, and I've seen a number of different videos on YouTube. It's a beauty of YouTube now um, of you batting, and one one innings in particular that really stands out to me was um, your 111 against the World Eleven in 71 72. Uh, you you were the original to bring up your hundred in the last ball of the day. Most younger guy, well, yeah. people my age, even um, a bit older. Thought it was Steve Waugh who did it. SCG, yeah. SCG, the last ball of the day, last ball of the day. So, um, so you were the original. Well, they say you learn something every day. I've just learned something. <laughs> that was at the Adelaide Oval, I think, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, right. Yeah. Chappelle, you are one of the true sages of Australian cricket, and I could ask you questions for days on so many different topics. But I will start with the technical aspect of batting. We'll dig into a bit more of the technical stuff. Um, you were one of the great all-round batsmen, and uh, were very well known for your back foot play, especially with your hook and pull shots. But was there one specific technical aspect of your game that you knew you worked on? And once you got it right, you knew you were going to be consistently at your best, and you can bring your best to every situation. Um, my my feelings about technique are: to me, technique is the ability to stop the good ones and score off the rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and forget how you do it. Everybody's got their own way of doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I've always said that the six guys, when we were a really good side in the seventies, the six batsmen all looked a hell of a lot different. But at the point of contact, they, you know, they did all the things that had to be done. Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't. See, I spent hell of a long time from the age of five till I was 
say about 16, 17, every Sunday of the summer. And when I when I'm talking summer, I'm talking probably September through to April. Mm-hmm. Um, every Sunday and. And I'd bat for about an hour in in this. Uh, Lynn Fuller had a, a backyard pitch, and he was the coach. And I'd bat for about an hour uh, with him. Mm. So I spent all that time. And then Martin, uh, our father, Martin. Mm. I reckon I was probably about nine, and I finished with Lynn, and was walking out of the nets. And Martin said, "Get back in the nets." And I don't think he ever told me, you know. Uh, he certainly never told me how to taught me how to to duck or bob and weave. Mm. It was just get down the other end. And Martin was a baseball South Australian baseball catcher, so yep. he had a good arm. And and the, because the pitch had been top dressed so much, there was this nice little rise at the halfway point, <laughs> and he was just throwing them off the rise. And yep. it was like do the best you can. So, you know, I spent all those years building up a technique. And when I once I got to the point of you know, I don't know, probably 21, 22, starting to play for Australia and that, mm. I felt that my technique wasn't going to break down. Yeah. Uh, what Anything that was going to go wrong was going to go wrong in, in my head. Yeah. I I got some terrible advice from Bob Simpson. Um, <laughs> uh, my first tour was South Africa in 66-7. And the problem, and this is why I've said Bob Simpson was a good coach uh, uh, catching and running between wickets, not batting. Okay. Uh, because, um, and I had personal experience. Yeah. Because he was very much, if he didn't play like him, <laughs> it wasn't the right way. Mm. And he came to me and he said, sometime during that tour, Ian, you should give up hooking. He <laughs> said, I gave up hooking um, and look what it did for me. He said, you've got enough shots to score without hooking, you should give it up. Now, the worst part of that advice was that I listened to it and mm. it sort of filled it in a bit. And I never, ever really wanted to give up hooking, but I got into the worst, into a worse possible state of will I or won't mm. I. Yep. And, and I got into a mess there for a while. And I always felt that it was, you couldn't sort things out in the middle of a series. You didn't have time and, to sort things out needs quite a lot of time, particularly if you're trying to sort out hooking. Mm. And so 70-71, Snowy was, you know, bowling some and, – and Snowy was not only a good bowler but he was very accurate yeah, okay. and his bounces were – you always had to do something. Yeah. So I got into a bit of strife with Snowy and – but I thought I've, I've just got to live or die with what I've got at the moment. Mm. But as soon as this is over, we had a, we had a break for six months so Greg and I spent probably three months at Plimpton High School in Adelaide, which was just down the road from where I lived. They had cement, nice shiny cement pitches, and we had lots of baseballs, which bounce a bit more than the cricket ball. And both being baseballers, we had good arms and accurate, mm. and and always run in because you know to me, if you just stand there and throw. You've got to replicate what you're doing in the middle. Mm. And, and, you know, I had a movement before the just as the bowler was about to deliver and I wanted to get in sync with the bowler. Yep. So I wanted, you know, and we both, so we both ran in through and we, we spent three months doing that and I sorted out my hooking. Um, I probably went to the other extreme for a while. I w- Every bouncer that was bold, I was going to hook the bloody thing, yeah. including some that were three feet above my head. And yeah. sure, I, you know, particularly around 72, I got out a few times hooking. 
But my attitude was always, um, am I gaining more from the hook shot than I'm losing? Uh, and I always felt that, and it wasn't just the runs, it was the psychological advantage. And I always felt in a cricket team that you needed to have a couple of guys or one at least up the top of the order who would take it on. Yep. Because I always felt that if, if somebody at the top of the order took it on and the fast bowler got hammered a few times, that was going to slow him down. If your bowling bounces and the bloke's just bobbing and weaving, then I think the bowler is saying to himself, well, it's not going to cost me here so I can bomb away and if I bowl a few bad ones, it's not going to cost me. Yeah. But if he knows it's going to cost him, then he probably bowls less bounces and he doesn't bowl them as well. He probably starts bowling them shorter, mm. which – if you're smart enough to let him go, which I wasn't for a while, um, you know, it gives you the advantage and he's all he's doing is wasting a lot of energy. So, you know, the, to me the psychological aspect of hooking mm. was really important. Here's two things. Michael Bevan got into a bit of strub, trouble with hooking mm-hmm. uh, or not so much hooking but just getting it's into trouble position. with short stuff. Yeah. And... I was, you know, I made some comments about it on commentary. And, and as a commentator, I was, I always tried to be constructive with any criticism I gave mm-hmm. uh, rather than just trying to tear a guy down. I, you know, I mean, I was a cricketer. I didn't want to be torn down, torn down, so why would I tear somebody else down? Anyhow, I made these comments and Michael Bevan came back from England. This would have been probably 93 tour, I think. Um and Mark Ray, who played a few Shield games for New South Wales and Tasmania and was a journalist, Mark rang me up and he said, I've been talking to uh, Michael Bevan and he reckons he sorted out his hook shot. And I said, well, I, just before I answer anything, you tell me what he's been doing. Mm. And he said, oh, he's had three months off. He just felt that he needed to clear his mind. I said, well, tell him he's wasting his time. Because until he fixes the physical side of it, he can't fix the mental side of it. He's got to go and work on it and then get that sort of – and I said even then when you've worked on it in the nets, you've still got to then go out in the middle and do it in the middle before you're really convinced in your own mind. Um, So – you know, the, there's that aspect of, uh, of, of, of hooking. Um, and the other thing is when Philip Hughes sadly got mm. killed with a short pitch delivery, uh, Cricket Australia decided to have a review of safety. And I remember I rang James Sutherland up, the CEO, and I said, James, does this safety review, does it include technique? Mm. And he said, I don't know, which I thought was a pretty ordinary answer from mm. the CEO. I said, well, can you find out, please? I never heard back from James, but eventually I ran into Steph Beltrami, uh, the media person mm. uh, with the board, and I said, I asked her the same question. She said, I don't know, but I'll get back to you, which Steph did. Mm. Steph got back to me and said, no, it's not included. And I said, you're kidding me. You're doing a safety review and you're not including technique. And I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this mm. because – I hadn't realised how much the batting techniques had changed until Ian Healy one day in the commentary, one morning in the commentary box, came bouncing into the commentary box and he said, I saw you bloody idiots on television last night. I said, what are you talking about? 
he said, oh, they've got something on, might have been on Fox, I don't know what, but he said, they've got something on Fox, whatever it was, 74-5 series, yeah. I think. So I watched the next night and I was staggered how much uh, the game was a back foot game in those days. Mm. Um, and now it's since the, uh, you know, um, with all the uh, equipment, the protective equipment, it's become much more of a front foot game. And, and my th- feeling is, and this is the way I explained it when I went to the academy, mm. that if I put a wire fence in front of you and, and you know there's a wire fence between you and me and I throw a ball straight at your face, you're going to flinch mm. because it's natural instinct. But if I throw it wide of you, you're not going to flinch. And that's my theory with hooking. If you get inside the line of it, mm. then you've taken the fear factor out because if you miss it, it's going to miss you. And and to me, that was always the important thing, to make sure that the that I got into a position where the ball was going to miss me rather than relying on the ball missing me. I yep. felt that that wasn't a good – percentages <laughs> weren't good. Um, but I think – and here's where I'd be interested in your thoughts – it's – being a back foot player, it's much easier to get inside the line because a, a lot of people thought that I made a really big move back and across. I didn't. I made two. I made a little one and mm. then if it was short, I went again yep. to, in order to try and get inside the line. Mm. Um, whereas if you're charging onto the front foot, how do you get inside the line? You don't. You can't. No, <clears throat> no. Okay. Yep, exactly. And I remember, well, I remember it was like it was yesterday in 99, what was it, the Cricket Academy? When you came down for for fast bowling week to work on our you know, our us playing the short ball because that was that's one thing as a as a batsman in particular if you if you can't play the short ball that well it's the easiest ball to bowl as a fast bowler running mm. bowl as fast as you can halfway down the wicket mm. so it's the easiest way to be able to expose a batsman <laughs> um, and but what you're talking there about like even see, seeing the footage of you batting and how you did play the short ball not wearing a helmet mm. um, because that's what you did but because your technique were was so good that you hardly, you hardly ever got hit. You never got into a bad position. Whereas nowadays, because of there are helmets now, as you, as you said, batsmen are more so like I am. I'm on the front foot and because, and I'm on the front foot. I'm not getting inside the line. I'm just taking it on mm. and off your ho- nose. Absolutely. And just mm. hope that I hit the ball. Mm. And at the last moment, if it gets big on me, then you just, you, you flinch, you flinch. You exactly. Your head, you turn yeah, your head, which, yeah. um, is why Which is what so happened. many people get hit. Exactly yeah. right. So um, in that regard, it's it's fascinating. And I wanted to talk about um, the fear factor that mm. because not wearing helmets, because for me, if I, if I try, if I go into the nets without a helmet, mm. I, one, I'd definitely be a back foot player because it would only be on the back foot, but then I'd be going under. I would not be taking on the short ball, mm. hooking or pulling at all. Mm. Was there a time that – because was there a time where you were, there was a fear factor that came into your batting because of the short ball or was there a moment where you did get hit that spooked you a little bit or just because your technique was so rock solid with it, you never really had that, it never came into your mind? Well, because, as I say, I was probably about nine when Martin started banging him in <laughs> short at me. So, you know, I had plenty of time to learn the shot. Mm. Um then I got a good lesson when I was 15. See, Prince Alfred College, when I was there, used to play in the second grade competition. Mm. If you were in the first, you were playing in second grade cricket. So you're playing oh, against right. men. And sometimes you'd cop a, a, a shield player on the way down, you know, right. a bit older. Um, so I went from the under 13s into the first. So at 14, <laughs> I was playing in this grade. 
And this week it had been at practice. It had been wet pitches. It had been raining a lot. And the pit, you know, um, Australian, well, probably a bit different in Brisbane because when the sun really they can be quite nasty. Mm. But in Adelaide, the pitch was wet and there wasn't a lot of sun around, so the ball would hit and come very slowly. Mm. So you're having to wait, 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 and then play the shot. And I must have still been in the wait, wait mode when we played. We played Salisbury. I'll never forget in the B grade side, and this guy was a bloody medium pacer and he hit me in the eye, you know, because I think I just waited and I waited too long, <laughs> bang. And the worst thing is not only did I have blood all over my bloody shirt and my creams and everything, but I fell on my wicket as well, oh, no. so now I'm out. Um, and Martin, uh, Martin, oh, yeah, so I had, luckily I had four stitches but it was right in my eyebrow so you could mm-hmm. never see them, but they put a Band-Aid over these bloody stitches, you see, and on Tuesday we had a house match against the the boarders school schoolhouse, so that was all the boarders, all the bloody farmers, and they're all they had about seven fast bowlers. You see, so I walked out with this bloody band aid, and I could see a bit of the band aid under my right eye. You see, and Martin just said, "You go you, into the ha- uh, the house game. You got to play." You know, and he was right. You know, get back on the horse as mm. soon as you can. Yeah, it was the right theory. Anyhow, these bloody Farmers bowling bounces around. I'm hooking everything. There's some of them are going over the you know, I'm top edging them over my head. Anyway, I got about 60, but it was the best thing that happened, you know, yeah. because it got me back on the horse. Yeah. So then, uh, but the, the good lesson was that I realized, you know, if you don't get your head inside the line, it, mm. one, it hurts, and two, you could get out because you fall on your bloody stumps. <laughs> yeah. So now I'm playing, I get in the shield side when I was 18. And Wes Hall was playing for Queensland oh, in those right. days. So I, I'd never thought, you know, I'd never thought about ducking. I had one method. It was hook Take and pull and that was it. And I, I used I used to sleep pretty well before games, you see. And suddenly I've woken up and we're playing Queensland at the Adelaide Oval, I think it was. I've suddenly woken up in the middle of the night as an 18-year-old and I'm thinking, Christ, what if Wes is too quick to hook? What's my plan B? <laughs> I had no plan B. <laughs> and I'll never forget it. We, we, I come in uh, against Wes and uh, the first bounce we bowled me was wide on the crease. I thought that's interesting because he was in close and then suddenly he's out here. Oh, that's interesting. So a few more from close in, boom, he goes out wide, another bouncer. First four bounces he bowls me all wide on the crease, and I'm thinking, ah, oh, this is this is okay. Got yeah. Every time he goes wide, it's a bouncer. I'm, yeah. I've got a bit of a warning signal here, you see. Well, he comes in the next one close to the stumps, and it was a bouncer. <laughs> and I'm wailing out the bloody thing, and it misses me, thank Christ. And I've never been so pleased to hear the whack into Wally Grout's gloves, you see. And Wally said, well, bold Wes, now give the little bastard another one. <laughs> And uh, so that was that was the first time I think that I'd thought about, you know, shit. What do I do if if this guy's too quick to hook? Mm. Um, the only bloke in my whole career, the only bloke I found who was unhookable was Jeffrey Robert Thompson. Okay. Uh, the bouncer that was short enough to hook went too high. His bouncers used to go. Okay. Uh, they were too high for not only me but Rodney as well. <laughs> Most of them clear Rodney's head as well. Yeah. And the one that was at the right height wasn't short enough. Um, right. I The first time I faced Tomo, he played uh, New South Wales went to, uh, this is 72-3, they went to Perth and I read in the paper how his first over there were 16 uh, extras, all wides. 
And they then come to Adelaide and we're having a beer after play one day. We must have uh, we must have been in the field. And I'm talking to Brian Tabor, the wicketkeeper, and I said, Tabsy, what's this bloke Thompson like? He said, oh, mate, he said, if he keeps playing, I'm going to have to buy a motorbike. <laughs> <laughs> and and he had the second, I missed him in the first inning. Second innings, uh, I think one of our openers got injured. I opened the batting. And I'm down the non-strikers end, Ashley Woodcock's opening. Uh, he's on strike. And Tomo runs in. And he used to, in those days, he bowled about three out of the eight, three leg cutters. On purpose? Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And this... This bloody thing it was short and it bounced about four times before it got to Brian Tabor. Okay. And I'm at the non-strike and I'm thinking, well, oh, if this bloke bowls short, he's got to go, you know. <laughs> so I get down the other end and the first one's short and I got halfway through, bang, on the gloves. Ooh. It wasn't the leg cutter. It was the, the proper one. I thought, mm, I might have to reassess here a bit. Yeah. But, yeah, he was, as I say, the, the one that was at the right height just wasn't. Uh, it wasn't that short. Wasn't, it was actually no. just back had, of a length. He had this unbelievable ability, particularly in Australia, mm. to get the ball at throat height from not that short. Um, yeah, right. And and when you're talking the pace, I mean, this will give you an indication of pace with Tomo. At, in 74-5 at the Wacker, he's bowled a bouncer. Now, the Wacker in those days, it's got to be 80 yards from the centre of the pitch to the side. He he bounced it in the centre of the pitch and it half volleyed the sightboard. It's too and, hard to imagine that can happen. Yeah, it is. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were there and saw it. And, yeah. and the, the the worst thing, I think it was Keith Fletcher was the batsman. Yeah. The worst thing he did, he followed the ball and he saw where it bounced. You don't want to see that. And as a all batsman. the colour drained out yeah. of his face. <laughs> you just keep looking straight ahead. But yeah. <laughs> but I mean, routinely, when he if he bowled a guy, the bales, you know, and Rodney would be back in a place like Perth. Rodney mm. would be back thirty yards, Jeez. and. The bales would be way behind him somewhere, you know, when he bowled someone. Yeah. And the worst thing about that was being a slip fielder because you're so far back. <laughs> the ball starts to wobble yeah. a bit, you know. Yeah. Uh, you want them to come quick and, you know, they don't deviate. But yeah. with Tomo, you're so far back that particularly they would dip on you and you okay. had to be really careful because last minute, you boom, the bloody thing dips on you. Right? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. From a from a catching perspective there that you mentioned, was there you were obviously a very good slips fielder? Was there one thing that you technically worked on as a through your teenage years or you know in your early twenties that you knew if you had that technique you were going to catch majority that came your way? Here again, I mean Martin, Martin had a grand plan. Uh, <laughs> I remember I don't know what age I was, but Trevor was around, so Trevor's nine years younger than me, so. I must have been 14, 15, I suppose, and he suddenly one day said, points at me, he says, you, you'll bat three, you, pointing to Greg, you'll bat four, and you, pointing to Trevor, you'll open. And he said, in the winter, you, pointing to me, you'll catch, uh, you, pointing to Greg, you'll play shortstop, and you, Trevor, you'll pitch. And it's apart from, I mean, Trevor pitched in his young days, he then he played shortstop as well. But the rest of it, that's how it pretty well worked out. I mean, Trevor opened quite a bit. Um, Greg and I batted three and four pretty well, you know, most of our careers. So, you know, he had this grand plan and part of the grand plan was you'd be walking around the bloody house from as young as I can remember and bear in mind no no tennis ball. It was had to be a hard ball, had to be oh, either right. cricket ball or a baseball. Okay. 
because he didn't want us to be scared of the hard ball. Yeah. And you'd be just walking around the house minding your own business, whoa, suddenly this thing had come <laughs> flying at you. Martin just fired a ball at you. And I'll, I'll never forget, um, I must have been about 18 months. I, I'm not even sure that I was walking, but I must have been walking, say 18 months. And we had a, there was a family function. And it wasn't at our house, somebody else's house. And one of the old aunties had found a golf ball somewhere and she came over and handed it and said, now throw the ball to auntie. And Martin's way over the other side of the room, you see, and, of course, he knew, you know, the auntie obviously thought I'm going to roll on the ground. <laughs> Martin knew that I'd been taught how to throw and I fired the bloody thing. This golf ball's <laughs> bouncing around the house. So, I mean, the point I'm making here is that, you know, from a very, very young age, mm. we, you know, we were taught how to catch properly and uh, and and also, you know, I was a baseball catcher, so mm. you're watching a ball into your glove the whole time. So, yeah, I mean, we have the perfect cricket education. Um, and, and I've said about, you know, when cricket teams start talking about getting somebody in to coach the test side yeah. on how to catch or yeah. how to do this, you know, how to play spin bowling before you go to India, for yeah. instance. I mean, bollocks, you don't learn how to play spin bowling when it's you're 25. <laughs> it's too late, yeah. I mean, you know, here's a classic example. Ed Cowan, for instance, wasn't didn't use his feet to spin us. Mm. Now, if they got me in to speak to the team, mm. what I'd be saying to Ed is, well, Ed, you really need to be using your feet, mm. but you don't use your feet. If you suddenly go to India, start using your feet, you might as well hold up a sign and say, you know, I'm I'm a wicket. Yep. Because it's not going to work. Exactly. So, and the same thing with catching. You don't learn how to catch, you know, when you're 21, 22, 20, you learn how to catch when you're young mm. and, and it becomes ingrained and, mm. and so that you don't have to think about it. And it's, it's interesting you ask that question because, you know, I, apart from watching a lot of cricket at, at grounds when I'm commentating, mm. I, I obviously watch a lot on television. And there's one simple thing that causes most of the drop catches in international cricket at the moment. Mm. And I keep looking mm. at this and I keep thinking, well, now every team has got a fielding coach. What does this fielding coach know about slip fielding? And it's a very simple thing. It's just a matter of turning. You just turn your foot slightly before you go, which balances you to then make the next move, whether it's just moving to your right side mm. or you move the left foot to the left or to get your balance so that you can dive. And it's a dive, not a fall, and that's what's happening with the guys who don't turn their feet. They're falling. Falling, yep. yeah. Yep. And you know, as a guy who filled it in the slips, mm. you ch- if you're falling, your chances, even if it hits in the middle, chances are you'll still drop it because you'll mm. hit the ground so damn hard the ball will bounce out. Yep. But if you're falling the chances of you getting in the middle of your hand are not very good. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're balanced and you're diving, your eyes sort of remain on a level yep. and if you're well balanced and diving, you'll catch it and then you've got time to get your other hand down to, to cushion the fall. Yep. But, you know, I just see these guys <laughs> who are not turning their foot and mm. they're just falling Fall. and I see it, I reckon 95% of the catches that get dropped in in international cricket are because of that. And I keep thinking, what are these what are the fielding coaches doing? And and mm. here's a classic <laughs> example. Uh, Roger Harper was one of the great fielders. Mm. Great fielder. He was a fielding coach for the West Indies. 
and he had four of the most useless outfielders, the four fast bowlers. Small, there was a guy called Small was one. Courtney mm. Walsh was another one. <laughs> they were bloody terrible in the outfield. And here's Roger hitting catches to these guys in the outfield, which is that's terrific, you know, mm. and try and improve. But here's the problem. He's got a guy taking the returns and tossing the ball to him, so he's going bang, he's hitting the ball, now he's turning back to the guy to get the ball. He's not watching what the guy's doing and saying, well, the reason why you're dropping it is so-and-so. Yeah. So what What the hell? I mean, if you're going to coach, coach using a bit of common sense for Christ's sake. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So when it comes to the mental skills aspect, was there one thing that you just knew you had to bring or you had, had to have in your mind every time you went out to bat, every ball that you faced, that you knew if you did that, you were gonna you were gonna be at your best and react to the best of your ability. Um, again, I'd say that it, it's got to be reactionary batting. Yeah. You can't be you haven't got time to think about things, yeah. particularly if it's ninety miles an hour. Mm. You, you haven't got time to change your mind. Um, so really, it's all the work that you've done in the years before, mm. then in the nets. And I I wasn't a great one to me. Um, at, at the before the season, two hits in the nets, and I'm right. Where's the games? Mm. You know, because the only way I'm going to find out if I'm really in form or not is playing in the middle. Okay. Yeah, uh, and a ten or fifteen minute net Tuesday and Thursday night that was plenty as far as I was concerned. Unless I had a problem and mm. I was trying to sort it out, uh, then I might spend quite a lot more time. But throwdowns, you know, I'm the only way I'm going to be interested in someone just throwing a few balls to me uh, in a slump. And I don't know why you do this, but most cricketers I've spoken to, the same thing happens. You you know, you suddenly, oh, shit, my eyes are gone. Um, my bats are no good. Uh, my footwork, I've got to change my footwork. Mm-hmm. You, go, you go through all this rubbish mm-hmm. um, and eventually you – and why you don't do this straight away, I don't know. Eventually you say to yourself, Ian, for Christ's sake, just watch the mm-hmm. ball out of the bowler's hand and that will solve most of your problems. But the reason I'm saying that is um, I, I think mentally you've got to eradicate, you know, a few things. And the one about your bat being no good, you, you know, you get someone to throw some half follies mm. and you smack them and you hit them in the middle and, okay, it's not the bat, the bat's yeah. not a problem. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, you know it's not your eyes. So, <clears throat> you know, I... I, you know, I had the same movement for fastballs. I didn't make a back and across movement for spinners. Yeah. Um, you know, I I see guys, and I think it's it's come into the game probably since Murley about Murley's time. Guys trying to get outside off. I'm talking about yep. right hand batsmen to off spinners trying to get outside so off stump. Mm-hmm. Now, any theory that involves trying to avoid getting out is a bad theory in my opinion because if <clears throat> if you're going to come up with a theory on batting, come up with one that in, involves scoring runs yeah. because that's the quickest way for you to put some onus back on the guy down the other end mm-hmm. and you would know as both a batsman and a bowler, you've you're got the benefit of knowing how hard it is if some guy, if you know that if you make a mistake 
just a few centimetres one way or the other and it's going to cost you four, that guy's a bloody hard bloke to bowl to. Yep. Yeah. But Absolutely. if you know that you make a mistake and it's not going to cost you, that guy's a lot easier to bowl to. Yeah. So um, anybody I see who's moving sideways against spinners or moving back, I, I mean you might occasionally do something to try and unsettle a spinner if he's giving you a problem or, you know, if the track's spinning a lot, but in general – you're either going well forward or you're going well back. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember talking to Warney after after the series, 2001 series, mm-hmm. where Laxman and Dravid had the big partnership yeah, in Kolkata. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's the best I've ever seen leg spin bowling played by Laxman, not not so much Dravid, by mm-hmm. Laxman. <clears throat> and I said to Warney after the series, I said, how do you think you bowled? And he said, I didn't think I bowled that badly. And I said, you didn't, mate. I said, but when a guy comes out three paces and he drives you wide of mid-on on a track that's turning, and, and I'm not talking half volleys here, he was hitting not half volleys, wide of mid-on. How he did it, i got no idea. Mm. It was pure genius. But I said, he's coming out three paces and driving you wide of mid-on, and the next ball you go a little higher and shorter trying to fool him, and that guy goes back and pulls you for four, I said, that's not bad bowling, mate. That's bloody good footwork. Yep. And, <clears throat> you know, when I would go to the academy, I would do an example of, right, this is how far you can get out, mm. and I'd put a ball down there, and this is how far you can go back, and I'd put a ball there, and I'd say, now that's how much you can change the length of a spin bowler. And I don't care if it's Shane Warne, Murley, or anybody who's really good, if you can change their length by that much, you're making life a lot more difficult for them. They'll get you out, mm. but, you know, the whole essence of cricket is, well, body line sums up the essence of cricket. You know, if you're, if there's a player in the opposition who is a genius and he's causing you problems and he's a batsman, as Bradman was, and he's averaging about 100, now if you can cut, as Jardine did, cut his average back to 56, <laughs> you've got to improve your chances of winning the game. Yeah. If you're playing against Australia and you've got Shane Warne and Glenn McGrath in the opposition and if you can make Shane Warne and Glenn McGrath pay 30 or 35 for their wickets, you've surely got to have improved your chances of winning the game. Mm. I mean, that that is simplifying cricket. That's to bring it to its most simple uh, common denominator. Was there one time as a leader where a situation arose and – the desired effect that you're trying to have didn't come across at all. So the next time a situation like that arose, you're like, I'm going to go in this direction because the last time I went there, it didn't get the desired result. Was there one moment like that? A couple of things. Um, I've always said if you if you call it what you like, premonition, gut feeling, whatever it is you want to call it, if, you, if one of those strikes you, do it straight away. Mm. And if it doesn't work, all right, if it doesn't work three or four over, then you change. Mm. But if you don't do it straight away, the opportunity will never come up again. So Mm. do it straight away. If it doesn't work, okay, it doesn't work, you move on and do something. You might go back to what you were doing before. Um, I learned a lot from from my own players, again. Um, And and the, the classic example of that was Old Trafford in 1972. Now, as a bit of history, I so I, I 
I captained South Australia five times, I think, before I captained Australia. I was actually vice-captain of Australia before I was vice-captain of South Australia. <laughs> In fact, when I came back, because uh, I replaced Barry Jarman as vice-captain of the Australian side, and Barry was vice-captain of the South Australian side. Okay. So they had to punt Barry and make <laughs> me vice-captain. And Les Favell said, uh, when I came back as vice-captain, he Jesus Christ, son, he said, uh, you might be vice-captain of South of Australia. He said, but if I want to check with somebody, I'll be checking with him, who was Barry oh, Jarman. Okay, have some so, of that. Yeah, so I knew where I stood there, yeah. <laughs> so I took over the next year, Les retired, and so 70-71, I, I took over. I captained five times, I think, before I'm suddenly captain of Australia. So now I'm on my first two. No, so a lot of my captaincy is done at the Adelaide Oval. Mm-hmm. And we had two quickies, uh, Jeff Hammond, uh, Kevin McCarthy, and then we had two very, very good spinners in Ashley Mallet and Terry Jenner. So I, a lot of the time at Adelaide Oval, I'd go straight from the quickies to the spinners. Okay. Greg, I remember Greg one day, uh, he's at second slip, I'm at first slip, and I bowled him for four overs, taking him off, and he's got the hump at second. <laughs> How do you expect me to get wickets in four bloody over spells, you see? And I said, mate, you're a number four batsman. You're here to get hundreds. I'm not going to do anything that's going to take away from you making hundreds, and that includes not bowling long spells. <laughs> you want to work out a way to get a wicket in four overs. And I said, and if you do get a wicket, you'll be off anyhow. <laughs> um, so, so a lot of the time I was going straight from the quickies to the spinners at Adelaide yeah. Oval. Now we throw forward to 1972, probably uh, about June maybe, and we're playing at Old Trafford, first test, uh, so my first overseas test as captain, and the thing is seeming all over the place. Um, so we've got Lily, uh, Lily, Collie, must, oh, Greg and Watson and Walters were seamers. So I've got um, – I've got – uh, Johnny Gleeson and uh, John Inverarity bowling left-arm spinners okay. on at the time, you see. And I am i didn't start out fielding at first slip to the spinners for a little while when I became captain because I thought, you know, I might be thinking too much about things and not concentrate. Quickie's different because i got a bit more time to think about things. Mm. So Stacky was at first slip and I was at mid-wicket and I was crossing over at the end of the over and as I walk across, Rodney Marsh comes past he says, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> and I said, what, something I said to you in the barler? No, he said, this is the greatest seamless paradise of all time. He said, and you've got a spinner bowling at each end. He said, get them off, get any seamer on. And I said, Rodney, I will remind you that one of those spinners has just got Jeffrey Boycott out but it was a very good lesson to me because I, when I stopped and thought about it afterwards, I thought, Ian, every game isn't at the Adelaide Oval. You're captaining as though every game is at the Adelaide Oval. Mm. You've got a captain according to what's there. So that was a, a very good lesson mm. and it wasn't the only time probably that Rodney told me I was a bloody <laughs> idiot and a couple of others. But, you know, I learned from those sort of things. Mm. Um, so... Um, and yeah, the important things with captain, uh, being a captain, is one is respect. That's the first thing. And you only get that one way. You've got to earn it. Mm. You can't ask for it. You can't, unless you're Aretha Franklin, you can't sing for it. <laughs> um, so you've got to earn it. And the other thing that I always felt with the players, the players want honesty. Mm. They've all been dropped from a cricket team. They, they can handle bad news, but they'll handle it better if you give it mm. to them face-to-face and quietly. 
you know, I, I always used to say you you um, uh, you castigate in private and you congratulate in company. So, you know, if somebody, if Dennis Lilly got five wickets that day when we're sitting around having a beer afterwards and say, boys, here's to Dennis, well done, mate, you know. So, you know, the guy feels good in front of his mates, he's being praised. But nobody likes to be, you know, Shane, you yeah. pillock, what are you doing, you know, in front of everybody. If I've got something to say to you, quietly in the corner, right, you know, what's going on, Shane, we need to sort this out. Um, <clears throat> so, but then there's also knowing your players, uh, knowing their capabilities, knowing what they're, what they're capable of and, and also what they might not be capable of. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to put them in a position where they've got a chance of succeeding. You know, I've always said as a, as a selector, you try to pick a guy as a batsman when he's in form, <laughs> you know, when he's got a couple of shield hundreds, right, good time. If you think he's a, a, got a chance of being a test player, get him in there. Mm. And if you possibly can, get him in on his home ground. So he's he walks out somewhere, he's, he, one, he's in form, and two, he feels comfortable. Mm. And, and, you know, to give you an example, uh, Jeff Hammond, uh, you know, I'd – I'd captain him a bit with South Australia. I knew what Bomber was capable of. He was a very accurate fast bowler. And if you told him, look, you know, this guy, I think if you bowl here, he's got a bit of a problem there, you know, um, you, you've got a chance of getting him out. And anyhow, Bomber came to me in his first test match. And, and this is why I've always said you never know where your next good idea is going to come from. So we're playing flat track at Sabina Park. There's not much happening. And Alvin Kalacharan's batting and he's 50 and he's going and he was a good hooker. He's a good player. And Bomber comes to me and he says, mate, I think I can bounce Kelly out. I said, Jesus, Bomber, it's, you know, there's not much in the track. Well, I think I can get him. I said, okay, well, at least you've told me. I'll give you, I can give you a bit of protection. Mm. And I said, you've got two, mate. You know, if that doesn't work, then we go back to what we're trying to do. He didn't need to. He got him with the first one. If you look at Jeff Hammond's first test wicket, Kalacharan, Court Marsh, Boulder Hammond, 50. <laughs> Bounced him because – and I trusted him because I, you know, I knew him. I knew what he could do and he, he, I knew if he bowled a bouncer it would be pretty accurate mm. and make Kelly do something. So those are the lessons you learn that, uh, you know, your good ideas can come from your teammates um, – you find out more about your teammates from having a beer with them and you're not just in the dressing room but you go to dinner with them. You, you know, and I said this before day night cricket. I said it's not a, an 11 to 6 job. You know, I mean there's two parts to captaincy. Uh, there's the on-field stuff which is, you know, if you've got a half a cricket brain and a bit of common sense, it's not that difficult, you know, changing the bowler, making, uh, pinning up the batting order, moving the field around. It's, it's all pretty well common sense with a bit of cricket knowledge. And then there's the, there's the leadership side of it, which is the off-field mm. stuff. And, and I've always said that the time that you spend off the field putting in time with your players, that you'll reap the rewards for that on the field. And an example I've given, and, and I was fortunate, I didn't have a coach uh, when I was captain. Mm. But, you know, if if a player comes to me, let's say I'm captain and a player comes to me and says, mate, I'm having trouble with my whatever it is with my batting. <clears throat> if I just say to him, mate, go see the coach, he'll sort it out for you. Now, the player's entitled to think, well, doesn't he care about me? Mm. And... 
Whereas if I say, well, okay, you're having a bit of a problem, um, you know, Ian Redpath bats a bit like you. Let's let's sit down with Redder and we'll have a drink and chat about it. And uh, uh, Terry, Terry Jenner came to me. This was with South Australia. You know, mate, I'm having a bit of. I said, mate, we're in Sydney. I've got Richie Benno's number. We'll call him up and talk to Richie. You know, because now you're getting blokes who understand what the guy's trying to do and the things that can go wrong. So you've been in the media for, well, gosh, really since Colour TV really came in, just about. Um, So with what you know about the media and then when when you're playing, would you have approached the media in a different way than what you did? Really, um, there was – uh, I mean, it was it was different, definitely different times. For instance, the journalists used to come into the dressing room, and okay. the, and the the only rule was that if you came in the dressing room, you had to bring some beer with you because <laughs> you're not you know we only get a bottle each. You're not drinking our beer and leaving us short. So, you, <laughs> and but and and it's a tribute to the journos that you know what. A, what the talk is like in the dressing room. A lot of things are said in the dressing room that you don't want to go out into the wide world. Mm. And I can't think of one time when that happened. It never happened because that guy would never Mm. have been allowed back in the dressing room. Mm -hmm. So it didn't happen. I had one idiot um, who was a representative of Batmaker. He came in and he was pissed and he came in the dressing room in 74-5 and because he was pissed and rooting around, he, he dropped a glass in the shower, a, a, a clear glass mm. in the shower. And I said, mate, you know, he, we're playing in the Test Series against England and you're dropping a bloody a glass in the shower. Somebody can go in there, cut their foot, and they're out of the series. Mm. I said, you can piss off out of the dressing room and you're not allowed back. And he, he came to me a couple of times he said, oh, mate, it's my business. I said, it's also your business to have a bit of common sense. Mm. I said, you're not coming back. While I'm captain, you're never coming back to the dressing room. I think when Greg took over, he got he was allowed back in the dressing room. But <clears throat> so, um, sorry, where do we, where, how do we start on that? Uh, the media. Oh, the media, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so there was that. And then television... Um, I think Richie Richie established a press conference at the end of each test match. So there wasn't – they probably – there was probably a bit before, but it was more the written guys, I think, mm-hmm. maybe a bit of television before a test. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you would do an interview after the test. Um, so it was, you know, it was a hell of a lot less onerous in those days. Yeah. I don't think there's anything that I would have done differently. I'm, uh, I'm a definitely a product of my mother. In that Jean, um, Jean had a lot of opinions, and she was quite happy to state them. <laughs> and you know, I've always, I've always, you know, because I think I've taken after Jean in that regard a lot. But again, I've always thought, just be honest. You know, if somebody yeah. asks you a question. Be honest. I mean, there's probably the odd time when you've got to – I mean, you don't want to be lying to people um, and I didn't want to be saying no comment um, because, I, you know, I think that's pretty wishy-washy. Um, 
but there are probably things, there are probably times when you've got to not say something. It's not like you're lying, but you just haven't told them what's going on totally. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't anywhere near as onerous. Um, yeah. So I can't think of anything that I would have done differently. Mm-hmm. Um, it was being captain was very good training for a career in the media because you were doing – you know, quite a lot of interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, in England, for instance, you uh, you had to speak. Like the first week you were in England was you had to fit bloody practice in between the social functions. Right. You know, you'd have a, it, there'd be a lunch, so you'd practice in the morning, there'd be a lunch, and then quite often there'd be also a function in the evening, and we're talking black tie functions. Okay. You, know, you had to – part of your – Luggage to England was a bloody dinner suit. Uh, <laughs> okay. um, so, so you were speaking a lot. Um, we had one manager. I, I, I was very lucky with managers. I had all good ones. I had one. He was a nice bloke, but he was a bit dopey. <laughs> um, and I'll never forget we're in England and he came to me and said, oh, mate, mate, uh, if you don't want to do any speeches, just let me know. I'll make the speech I'll make the speech for you. And I thought to myself, if I let him speak, the boys are going to kill me. <laughs> um, so, again, that was it was good training. And, you know, a lot of the time, for instance, I can remember, <clears throat> um, uh, you know, we had we had a one huge function. You had uh, Harry Seacombe was uh, he was the uh, Prince Philip was the twelfth man for the Lords Taverners, and Harry Seacombe must have been the president. And so he's he didn't act well. He sort of spoke, and then you had a guy called Leslie Crowther who was a very famous comedian in in England. A very funny guy. A lot of the the guys were, you know, I mean, the speeches you actually enjoyed them, and they were really good. The, that's where the English are very, very good on after dinner speaking. Mm. Some of the and so you're, you know, like the guy with the bloody gong and they're all dressed up. You know, pray silence for <laughs> the captain of Australia. Jeez, you know, and you, here you are. You're speaking up for Harry Seacombe, Leslie Crowther, and so it was. You know, it was damn good uh, training for for the media. Um, yeah. Uh, it. I guess I was lucky in that regard. Speaking, you know, I used to get a bit nervous about it, but I've always thought it's a bit like before, you know, when you walk out to bat, you're nervous. Mm. And I've always said if you're not nervous, then surely you don't, you don't care. Mm. Exactly. You know, I mean, <laughs> if you care about it, you're going to be nervous because yeah. nobody wants to fail. But mm. the moment you sort of mark your guard and you look down and, shit, I'm facing Jon Snow or Andy Roberts, and you forget about the nerves now, Christ, you know, <laughs> I've got to make some runs against this guy. That, that helps get rid of a few nerves. Yeah, that's for sure. Look, growing up, I always read so believed that life was meant to be a fairy tale, that there was never going to be downs especially. There was always just going to be on this um, um, line going up. I hope you still don't think that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I definitely realise that that's not the case now. Um, so do you have a saying in your life that, you that you use to make you bounce back from you know the downs that always come um, and the challenges that come up in life. Again, most of the lessons that you learn from sport apply to life as well, um, business and life. That's what I've found. 
and and you'll understand exactly where I'm coming from when I say this. As a batsman, you get out cheaply and you come back in the dressing room. And for me, it was half an hour. I wasn't a sane person for half an hour. And and my teammates knew it. They, like the 12th man, would plonk a drink on the table and a jug. You used to drink water most of the time. So a jug of water and a glass of water and then shoot through and just leave me to it. Um, so for half an hour, it would be... Jesus, that was a lucky catch or that was a crap decision or bloody bowler. He couldn't get me out in the middle of the night. How did he get me out? (laughs) And after about half an hour, there would suddenly come, Ian, that wasn't a very good shot you played. So now you realise you're starting to get somewhere. And to me, this is the point when things get low. You got it at the bottom before you get back up, you start to head back up. And... The bottom point is when you start being honest with yourself and you start saying, right, now, why did that happen really? Mm. It wasn't the umpire, it wasn't the bowler, it wasn't the lucky fielder, it was you. And now what did you do wrong? And and one of the things that I hated the most was making the same mistake. Mm. Jesus, that pisses me off. Mm. And it still does, you know. I mean, I play a lot of snooker now and... You know, and I'm, obviously I'm going to make the same mistake m- much more often in snooker because I don't know what the hell I'm doing, <laughs> whereas at least in cricket I had a bit of an idea what I was doing. Yeah. But it still pisses me off greatly. So <clears throat> that that to me was that's the main thing, that mm. uh, once you start to look in the mirror and be honest with yourself and say this is why it went wrong, now what do I have to do to make sure that it doesn't go wrong next time? then you're on the right track. Um, So really that's how I've lived uh, not only my cricket career but the sports that I've played after cricket and and when I played baseball, the same thing. Um, And now in life and any business dealings, when things get low, you know, you've got to – You've got to go through all the crap because you you discover that that's your personality, Mm. you know. I mean – this is one. This is another problem I have with coaching, and you've probably gathered that I have a bit of a problem with coaching. <laughs> yeah, you're not the only one. To me, uh, you either have good coaching or you're better off having none at all mm. and working it out for yourself. Mm. And and the examples I would give there are guys from the bush in particular. Um, Don Bradman, you've heard about him with the stump mm. and the golf ball. Uh, Bill O'Reilly, you know, and just bowled and bowled and bowled for hours. Doug Walters uh, up in the bush played for hours on an ant bed wicket. They they worked out their own game and they they worked out what worked for them. And you know they they didn't need coaches and so on. I was lucky. I had a good coach and, and it helped enormously. But here again, um, I was probably I don't know maybe seven, eight, nine, that sort of time. And Lynn Fuller said to me, Ian, it doesn't matter how good I am as a coach, I can't help you when you're out in the middle. He said, the quicker you learn this game for yourself, the better off you'll be. Well, you can't get better advice than that. So I was lucky with the coach. But, um, you know, a, a problem I have with coaches is you've got to coach according to the guy's nature. Yeah, it's it's no good going to Jeffrey Boycott and saying, Boyks, you've got to take on these fast balls. You've got to hook them and cut them and, you know, it won't work because that's not how Boyks is put together. 
the same as it's no good coming to me and saying, oh, Ian, you know, you've got to bob and weave and duck and get out of the way. Bounces. I, you know, my attitude was, well, you know, you might think you're going to do some damage and you may do some damage, but I'm going to try and do some damage first. You know, I'm – what did the uh, the Welsh rugby coach say? Get your retaliation in first, boys. <laughs> yeah. You know, th- that was my attitude with – so it's no good telling me that I've got to bob and weave and duck and get out of the way because mm. it doesn't work with my personality. And and if you're coaching people, that's got to come into your calculations, mm. the, the guy's nature. You've met and been around some of the most successful people in the world. Who has inspired you the most? I, I'd probably say uh, three people. Mm-hmm. As a kid, Martin would take me to the Adelaide Oval and – if it was New South Wales or Australia, it would be watch Miller, watch what <laughs> Miller's doing. And, yeah, and there would be other players with different teams and they were always aggressive players. But Keith Miller was my first uh, <laughs> idol and one of the great things about that is that when I got to spend quite a bit of time with him later in life, he lived oh. up, you know, to my... Because quite often you'll find the bloke doesn't live up to what you thought, <laughs> and that can be a bit of a disappointment. Yeah. But Keith, uh, you know, I I idolise Keith. Mind you, that that's like Australia saying Australians drink beer. You know, I mean, mm. everybody idolises mm. Keith, male and female. He, you know, Keith. I remember we were walking at the Ferocia Cotler in Delhi. We were walking, mm. and, and I'm commentating now, and Hooksy's commentating, and we're walking down going to lunch. And, I, and there's a whole lot of photos along the wall. And I said, Hooksy, notice anything about the photos? And he looked and he said, no, what? And I said, there's only one non-Indian guy there and it's Keith Miller. I mean, Keith Miller was the most popular cricketer in the world, yeah, probably next to Bradman, but Bradman was popular because of his playing ability. Mm. Keith was popular because he was Keith. Yeah, you know, he spoke, to, he knew everybody, and so Keith was my first one, and that was that was terrific. Then, because I um, because I followed baseball very closely, um, Jackie Robinson, who was the first yeah. guy who who broke the colour ban in forty seven. Mm. Yeah, I, I read about that a lot and, and Jackie Robinson always, you know, I always admired the guy and the main reasons why I admired him was you imagine uh, a guy coming into the league, uh, he's the only black guy in the league, there's a hell of a lot of guys don't want him there and even some on his own team don't want him there and there's some spiteful bastards around who are trying to spike him and cause him a damage, and he's got to just cop it and not fight back. And I thought the intelligence and the courage that that takes mm. to do that, and he did it. He did it for two seasons. I, I, I've read a lot about him, a couple of books, uh, Bums and Boys, The Boys of Summer, okay. both about the Brooklyn Dodgers. And fantastic books. And Jackie, apparently, after two seasons, he stood up at spring training in front of all the Dodgers team and he said, right, I've copped this crap for two years. He said, I'm proved, I've am proved. i proved I'm a major leaguer. He said, now I'm fighting back. 
and they reckon all the blokes who got him, he got them back. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, the courage and, and intelligence it would have taken, knowing that, you know, the first guy who called him a, you know, so-and-so, mm. um, if he whacked him, then it's all the experiment. Well, not it wasn't an experiment, but... It's all over. Yep. You know, they've probably got to wait another 20, 30 years before they're allowed into the league. So, you know, I, fantastic admiration. One of the one of the things that I treasure the most, I, I spent eight years working with Mike Gibson in this building, oh, yeah. you know, and obviously Wide World of Sports. Mm. And there was a – I think it was must have been the first Jackie Robinson day. They now hold every – April the 15th, I think it is, which was the first day he played in the major leagues. Every year everybody wears number 42, which was his number. Every player now does. and But back in those days they just called it Jackie Robinson Day and I was doing Wide World of Sports and we had a nice thing on it, you see, and I wrote this intro to Jackie Robinson. And Gibbo was a terrific writer himself and – when I introduced it, we went to the footage and Gibbo just turned to me and said, that's a great introduction. And that, I really treasured that from a bloke who was a good writer. Yeah. Uh, so Jackie Robinson, um, and I guess, and I, I keep referring to Gene, I, my sense of fair play comes from Gene as well. I mean, Martin a bit, but more yeah. Gene. You know, there was always this, you know, uh, and I mean, Martin, that's how he taught us to play. He said, Play hard, but play fair. Mm. Um, but Gene, sense of fair play, definitely a lot of that comes from from Gene. And and my sense of fair play was offended with you know the treatment that Jackie Robinson got. Yep. And then the third one was Jack Nicholas. Um, uh, okay. Because I I started to play golf really once I toured internationally. Okay. I didn't play a lot. I played a little bit of golf, but not much before. And I started to play golf a bit and, and then got interested in it. And <clears throat> I just admired Nicholas and, and the way he played. I've always thought with golf, you've either got to be really intelligent or really dumb. <laughs> Being in the middle is no good. Because yeah. you, if you're half smart, you'll see the trouble and think, oh, Jesus, I can't go there. And yeah. what do you do? You hit it there straight away. Yeah. Whereas if you're really intelligent, you you see the trouble and you know how to avoid it. Mm. And if you're really dumb, you don't see the trouble and you just hit. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, Nicholas to me was at the top end of the scale. He was really intelligent and and very good. Yeah. But and again, I got the, the I got the opportunity to meet him a couple of times. Okay. And again, he lived up. He did one of the most fantastic things right here in this building. Um. Uh, when Jack Newton got hit by the oh, uh, yeah, propeller but, yeah. uh, and lost his arm mm. and lost his eye and so on and was bloody close to death. Mm. And Saul Stein was the producer of Wide World of Sports in those okay. days. <clears throat> and Saul hadn't been doing the job that long. He was pretty, And he was very young. I mean, he started, Hilly saw him when he was 18 and got him into the cottage. And he wasn't, I don't know what age he was then. But anyhow, he said, right, what we're going to do, he said, you're a mate of Jack Newton's. He said, "We're going to. The whole show is going to be devoted to Jack Newton. The whole five hours, all <laughs> devoted to Jack Newton." He said, "What you're going to do?" He said, "You're going to ring all these, or we're going to get all these golfers from all around the world, all Jack's mates. They're going to send messages and so on." He said, "Where you go?" So Tuesday, start Tuesday, and you know, Seve Ballesteros, Tom Watson, Buddy Lee Trevino, all these guys. 
I'm ringing them up saying, and they'd all heard about it. Oh, yeah, we're delighted to do it. So we're getting all these messages. And I thought, you know, we've got to get Jack Nicholas. Mm. And I knew that Pat Wheatley, Kerry's secretary, would have his number because Kerry, you know, got him out to to uh, uh, do some architecture on the Australian right. Golf okay. Club. I think he spent, I don't know, a few million on getting Jack out and changing the course. Mm. So I knew that Pat Wheatley would have his number. So I ring Pat, said, Pat, have you got Jack Nicholas's number? Yep, here's his number. So she gives me the number in Florida. I ring it. Barbara Nicholas answers the phone. I tell her what's happening and she knew that she said, oh, you know, uh, can you send some? I'll send some flowers to Jackie. How's she coping? Jackie being his wife, and so on. And and I told her what I wanted to do, and she said, "Take this number down." I wrote the number down. She said, "There's a Canadian number." She said, "I know Jack's going to be in his. Uh, he's going to be in his room at nine o'clock Canadian time on this number." He said because. She said, because I'm supposed to ring him at that time, but you ring at that time because I know he'll be there to answer the phone. <laughs> so I rang him and, you know, he, again, knew what had happened to Jack and um, and I'll, I'll never forget his opening words on the on the tape were, Jackson, I didn't realise going to the football could be such a tough deal. <laughs> but anyhow, I rang him and I explained what we were doing and he said, that's no problem. He said, I know all Jack's mates on the tour. He said, I'll get them by the first tee at this time, such and such a time. He said, you get your cameraman there at that time and I'll have all of his mates there and we'll all send a message. And Jack Nicholas organised the whole bloody th- that whole bloody thing oh, and did it. Yeah, oh, mate, he was uh, – and I met him a couple of times, met him at the Masters when I was doing the Masters. Uh, and, um, he, you know, he lived up to all my admiration. He was just terrific, but yeah. I, I'll, I'll never forget that as long as I live. He said, you just, he said, no problem. I'll get them all together. You just ring me. Uh, you you tell your cameraman to be there at that time and it'll all be done. And it was all done. Chipelli, look, I really do appreciate your time. And again, I, we, I could talk and ask questions for days and days because it's just been phenomenal, mate. And I mm. wish I did this earlier. Mm. I really do. Um, and it would have helped me a lot when I was playing as well. So, um, Ian, it's so incredibly special to have had one of the true sages of Australian cricket on this episode of Lessons Learned with the Greats. You have lived such an extraordinary life and you are one of the true pioneers on the game becoming a professional sport and we current players have you to thank for the riches that are in cricket nowadays. Thank you so much for giving me the time to share all of these incredible insights and stories. And we're all that much richer for digging into the digging deeper into the mind of one of the genuine greats of world cricket. Thank you, mate. I appreciate it, mate. Thank you. Thank you. For more episodes of Lessons Learned with the Greats, head to t20stars.com forward slash podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.